All right, good morning, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. Last Sunday of the semester. That is crazy, isn't it? Man, I cannot believe that uh, the semester's gone by as quickly as it has. I don't know how it's felt for you guys. It feels to me like it's flown by, um, but it's been really good, uh, and especially just getting to pray for you seniors. You guys um, are awesome. Just thank you so much. I know some of you guys are going to be sticking around here, and uh, that's awesome. I'm excited to get to continue to, to uh, run after Jesus with you guys. Uh, for those of you that are going off to other places, like, yeah, we totally wish you the best, and you guys are in our prayers. Um, this morning, I get to preach on something that's pretty exciting, actually. I, I've even given the sermon a uh, Lord of the Rings t- uh, title. I call it Return of the King. Um, now, we won't be watching Lord of the Rings or anything, but our, our message is about uh, re- the return of the king. But uh, if you uh, have been with us throughout this semester, you remember we did uh, Judges Before Spring Break, and then we came back and we've been running through the book of First Thessalonians. So today... I am going to wrap that up. I have about a chapter and a half I have to get through, so I may go long, but if I do, that's okay, because this is the last Sunday of the year, and I feel like I have freedom to do that. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to get you out of here by like three. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we're going to wrap up the uh, book of First Thessalonians today. And as we know, First Thessalonians, we call it the book of First Thessalonians because that's how our Bible is organized. You know, we call all these different things books. But in reality, it was actually a letter uh, or something, the fancy term for it is epistle that was written from the Apostle Paul and some of his friends to a church in Thessalonica, which was a church that they planted. And um, Paul had only gotten to be with these guys. If you remember back to the beginning of the series, he was only with them for three weeks. And then he got driven out of the town by some pretty intense persecution. And so... Naturally, um, Paul is concerned about how well these guys are doing because they accepted Christ and then people started to hate him and, and hate Christ's followers and drive them out. And so Paul's kind of got this burning desire to figure out what's going on with the, the Thessalonians. You know, I care about them. I want them to keep growing in Christ. So he sends his friend Timothy back to get a report on, hey, how, how are they doing? And uh, against all odds, Timothy actually brings back a report that they are doing an awesome job. Like they're killing it. They are uh, thriving, actually, despite the fact that they were facing all this persecution, that the Apostle Paul was only with them for three weeks. Uh, nonetheless, these people are growing in their faith in Jesus. And uh, you can just tell that Paul is really proud of how well they're doing. And uh, one of the things that he, he tells them is like, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Keep at it. Excel still more. You're doing a really good job. Continue to do even better. And that was why uh, we really wanted to preach through this book is because as your guys' pastor, I feel like I've been seeing you... Um, collectively as a church, just grow in your love for Jesus and grow in your faithfulness and following him. And uh, th- there's so many things that I'm, I'm proud of you guys in the way that you're running after the Lord. And, and the message that I want to give to you as your pastor is kind of the same one that Paul wanted to give to the church in Thessalonica. It was just like, man, you're doing a great job. Excel still more. You know, keep growing in this. And, and Paul talked to, about a couple of the things uh, that the church in Thessalonica was doing really well. Kyle preached on those the past couple of weeks. Uh, we saw that they were really excelling and loving each other well. And that, that they were doing a pretty good job living holy lives too. And, and Paul just wanted them to keep going in that direction. And so uh, as we wrap up this letter, Paul is going to start talking about uh, something pretty interesting, which is the return of Christ. That's why I've uh, titled this sermon, Return of the King. And uh, 
we're going we're gonna to get into that, and then he's just going to give us a few like final thoughts on uh, how we can live a life that really reflects the fact that we're waiting on our king to return. Okay, So my goal this morning is to inspire you guys uh, to just keep running hard after Jesus. You know, you guys, a, a lot of you, some of you are going to be here this summer, but a lot of you are going to be leaving this community where you've been growing a lot. And, and man, I hope that what you hear this morning will be ringing in your ears throughout the summer and that it will be a constant motivation for you to just be running hard after Jesus wherever you are. All right? Um, so with that, let's uh, just pray, ask the Lord to guide us through the text, and we'll jump in. Um, God, we thank you for being our awesome God. Lord, we thank you that you are the king. God, that you um, are more powerful than anything, Lord, that you're greater than anything, that you're worth all of our devotion. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord. And God, we, we know that the things we're about to read are words from you. And God, I, I pray that we would give them the proper attention that they deserve. Lord, I pray that we would um, just be hungry for what we're about to receive this morning. God, that we would look forward to the nourishment that comes from uh, just getting to know you better. God, that we would rejoice in the fact that we get to know you better. We get to know how to follow you better. God, I pray your spirit would be with us this morning. Help us to receive uh, your word, God. I pray that you'd clear out any distractions that may be in our minds about homework or finals or anything else, else that's coming up, God, and that we just be able to give our full attention to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, speak through me. Let me speak in a way that is pleasing to you and edifying to those that hear. Uh, we love you, and we ask this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right. So we're going to jump in. If you have your Bible with you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we're going to get started at verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 through the end of the chapter. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and a sh with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, so in the previous section of this letter, uh, as I was saying, Paul was kind of telling them, hey, you're doing a great job with these things. I want you to continue working on this kind of stuff. And one of the last things he was talking about was living holy lives. And then we all of a sudden get to this section where he starts bringing up people that are asleep. And it's like, wait, wait, why, like, where's that, where's that jump? Why are we talking about people that are asleep? Why would I be worried about people that are asleep? Like, is God going to smite people that fall asleep in church or something? You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Some of you guys better watch out, because I see some of you. Um, but, but no, that, that's, <laughs> that's uh, it's a good question, right? It's, it's kind of confusing to, to figure out, why, why would the Thessalonians be worried about these people that have fallen asleep? Well, the, uh, the thing is, these people are really, really sound sleepers. Um, as a matter of fact, like, there's no alarm that, that can wake them up. They're actually dead, is what Paul means. Um, when, when he says that they're asleep. And some of you guys that have, are reading the New Living Translation, your translators helped you out and just straight up wrote believers who have died. 
Um, I, I wish they wouldn't have done that, though. I like the way that the New American Standard translates it here, uh, because Paul chose to use the word for sleep instead of the word for dead for a reason, even though he was speaking about dead believers. Um, and the reason that he chose this word is because we understand sleep as being something that's temporary, right? When somebody goes to sleep, you always assume that they're going to wake up. Some people do so easier than others, but you assume that they're going to wake up. You know that it's a temporary state, uh, whereas generally when we think of death, like we think of that as a final state, okay? And so even though these people are dead, Paul's trying to, to communicate to them, yeah, they're dead, but that's not their final state. Like there's going to be a resurrection. And so he uses this word sleep to help plant that in the minds of the Thessalonians. Uh, Jesus did the same thing when he was talking about his friend Lazarus. You might be familiar with the story of Jesus. Uh, he has this friend named Lazarus who dies. He's been dead in the tomb for four days. Um, he gets the report that his friend Lazarus is, is really sick and then eventually hears that he dies. And Jesus tells this to his disciples in John 11. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, <laughs> okay? so that's, that was like the NLT. They just took the second approach. It's like, hey, just, he's, they're dead. Um, but, but no, so Jesus was doing the same thing with his disciples, right? Because he knew that he was about to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he's trying to tell them, yeah, okay, he is dead, but he's asleep in the sense that this is just a temporary state. And so um, Paul is, is trying to get this idea across to the Thessalonians, and this is the way that Christians should view death, okay? We, we realize that, man, this is, this is something that's temporary. What's been sown perishable, these bodies that we know do decay, they do get sick, they do break down, will eventually, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 15, sorry, be raised imperishable, okay? That's why I hate the phrase YOLO, Okay? YOLO is not a belief that Christians hold. You don't live just once. Um, we will be raised to life after our death. So we know that Paul isn't talking about actual sleep here, um, but why is it that he brought this up at all? You know, it's kind of strange. He was talking about this idea of living a holy life, and then all of a sudden he's saying, don't worry about these guys that are asleep. Well, one of the things that you have to realize is, remember, this is a letter, so there's a correspondence back and forth between them. And most likely, the Thessalonians had some questions about why they had friends who had died. Now, that seems strange to us, right? Like, if you have a friend that, that dies, sometimes people ask, like, oh, you know, why did they die so early, if it's maybe a friend that died young or whatever. But, but we generally aren't surprised when someone dies. We realize that that's what happens to humans. But we live 2,000 years after the time of Christ. I want you to listen to this verse. It's the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, you've all heard that verse before, and you all probably have some level of understanding about it. You understand that when it talks about eternal life, it's getting at the fact that what I was just getting at. Death is not your, your final state. You'll be raised to life, and you'll get to live forever with Christ. But you've got to put yourself in the mind of, of a first-generation, like, first-century believer, okay? The, the gospel has just been preached to them. They learn that they're going to have eternal life. There's a good chance that you might take that literally as, I, I will not die. Like, I'm never going to die. You understand how that, that might be something that you receive that way? It, it's almost hard for us to put 
ourselves in that situation just because Christians have died for so long over thousands of years that we understand uh, the teaching of Jesus. And, and this is the biblical teaching, of course, is that you, the, the flesh is still going to die. But there, it makes sense that some of the Thessalonians might have been confused about that. Like, wait a second, my friend was a Christian, and he, he put his faith in Christ. He said he was supposed to have eternal life, and now all of a sudden he's dead. What's happening? And so that's why Paul is trying to comfort them with saying, hey, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's going to happen. Right? And it especially makes sense that he was, was doing this after he had talked about holy living. Because holy living requires what? Self-denial. Okay? Now, I do believe that the most abundant life you can possibly have is in Christ. And that living a holy life and, and following Jesus really does result in an, an awesome life in a lot of ways. There's persecution and trials, yeah. But at the same time, like, God doesn't give us commands about righteousness to make us miserable. But it does require a lot of self-denial. And so when you're trying to get these people to say, hey, follow after Jesus, be faithful to him, they need to know, is it really all worth it in the end? Or am I just going to die? And if that's what it is, then it's not worth it. If we only hope in Christ for this life, then it's not worth it. Paul himself says this. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Paul said this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Okay? We, we have an eternal faith. And this is an important thing for us to remember. Our faith is built on the resurrection. Paul is, is straight up saying here, hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is worthless. Okay? Jesus didn't raise it. And that means that you're not going to raise either. And it disturbs me, a, a trend that I see happening both within the church and outside of the church, some, some on very, very uh, theologically liberal sides of Christianity are even questioning, did the physical re resurrection of Jesus even happen? Which is a crazy thing to assert because literally that's the thing our faith is built on. Like that was the impetus behind the disciples even spreading this message. That's what changed them from cowards to heroes that ended up dying and, and being martyred for this cause. Whatever, it's, it's a ridiculous idea. But there are some people questioning, did the resurrection of Christ even happen? And then there are others that say, okay, well, we're not necessarily going to question whether the resurrection of Christ happened, but we're just going to focus on making this world as the best place we can, okay? This is a popular sentiment all throughout our campus. I talk to people all the time on campus, uh, many of them who proclaim to be Christians, and when you get into the conversation and you start to get into some of these things, you start to get into things about heaven and hell, they generally want to circle it back to, well, whatever, like, anyone can believe whatever they want to believe, as long as we're all making the world a better place, like, what does it really matter? Okay? The problem with that view is that it only thinks about this world. And, and that is not Christianity. I'm sorry, if that's the Christianity that you're buying into, that's not, Paul says it's worthless. Okay? Now, yes, we should be salt and light in this earth. We should be making this world a better place. Okay? Jesus says that we should uh, do our good deeds before men and, and let them praise the Lord because of that. Okay, so we need to be making the world a better place. We should be having a positive impact. But if that's where our faith stops, then it's worthless. 
We're to be pitied above all men. You can't, please, please do not buy into this notion that all that matters is trying to make this world a better place. That's not Christianity. That's not from the Bible. And that, that, that is nothing that the apostles preached. Okay? Yes, make the world a better place. But the resurrection is really important. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection that we will have. Yeah, let's make this world a better place. But man, let us also be people that have our hope staked in the fact that this is not the only life we have. That we've received eternal life, that we will be raised to life, and that we will live forever with Christ. Man, that is vital. And it, it disturbs me that some people are trying to remove that focus, the eternal focus that we should and must have as Christians. Man, may we be an eternally minded people. And if we are an eternally minded people, we will make this world a better place as well. And I'll get into some of that later. Um, Anyway, I want you to realize just how important this is, though. Like, if this world is all that we have to live for, we're really no different um, than most anybody else. And Paul says, man, you guys should be different in the way that you view death. Okay, well, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Why? So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Okay, that's the reality of where most of our world sits when it comes to death. Okay, most of us here are young. The vast majority of you probably don't think about death on a regular basis, if at all. Maybe some of you do. Um, but the fact is, when you're young, you generally don't think about it, right? And that's part of why I think it's easy to buy into that philosophy I was just encouraging you not to. That, oh, all that matters is this world make a better place. You start to get older, your body starts to break down, you start to realize that you're getting closer to death. You're going to be hungry for something a little bit more than just, man, I hope that this world's a better place. And, uh, man, the, the, the fact of the matter is, do we have hope in death? Christians are the only people that can have legitimate hope in death. If you look at this, uh, I think that when it comes to death, people pretty much fall into three general camps. One, people that are afraid to die, okay? Uh, this is the vast majority of people on earth. All of us have some biological fear of death, okay? Like if someone came in here with a gun... I don't think we'd all just be like, all right, just shoot me. You know, you'd be, you'd, you'd be scared on some level, okay? So I'm not saying that when you're not afraid to die, that means that you, like, wouldn't try to avoid being killed if someone was trying to kill you. Uh, but most people are afraid to die in the sense that this life is the only thing they know. It's the only thing they have put any hope in, and they have no clue what comes after, and that's a terrifying thought. Second camp, you have people that are not afraid to die. Okay, um, every now and then you'll come across a person that's not really afraid to die uh, for whatever reason, either because they have a lot of faith in themselves, and it's just like, well, whatever's on the other side, I'll be fine. Or maybe uh, they're atheists, and they're just like, well, I know what happens. You just die and decompose, and that's all there is. It just lights out. Uh, there's nothing to be scared of. But there's no real hope in that perspective. And then the third camp, this is the one that Christians should be in if we're living with a biblical worldview, which is people who are hopeful about what comes in death. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that that means we should all like, go commit suicide or anything like that and try and get to death as fast as we can. But we do have to realize that for the Christian, death is, is a, a doorway into actually the, the killing of what is perishable and, and the raising of what's imperishable. Okay? We're, th this isn't just the end for us. Alexander Campbell uh, was an influential Christian that lived in the uh, 1800s pre-Civil War time in the United States. 
And um, he, he was a pretty influential Christian. He was uh, famous for debating a lot of leading secular thinkers at the time. And uh, he actually had a, a debate with a guy named Robert Owen, who was a, a kind of an enemy of Christianity. He was an early proponent of socialism. Um, and they had this debate right here in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1829. And uh, before this debate with, with Robert Owen took place, uh, Owen went and visited Alexander Campbell out on his farm that he lived on in West Virginia. And they, were just, they wanted to get to know each other a little bit, a bit better and, and, and prepare for the debate. And uh, they're walking around the grounds, and they come across this little cemetery that's on the grounds of, of Alexander Campbell's estate. And uh, Robert Owen says, If some few items of my business were settled... I should be perfectly willing to die at any moment, spurred by you know, seeing the cemetery. And Alexander Campbell responded by saying, Well, you say you have no fear of death. Have you any hope in death? Owen Posner responded, No. Campbell then pointed at an ox standing nearby and said, Then you are on the level with that brute. He is fed until he is satisfied and stands in the shade, whisking off the flies, and has neither hope nor fear in death. Man, if we don't have hope in death, we're no different from the ox that's standing on the hillside, whisking its flies away, waiting until our time ends. But man, for the Christian, there's something more. We don't have to comfort ourselves with empty platitudes that you hear at funerals. I don't know how many funerals you guys have been to, uh, but man, there's a difference between funerals of people that are, are true, solid believers in Jesus and those that are not. Um, and I've been to both kinds. And uh, at the funerals I'm at where people you know, either didn't really have a very strong faith or had no faith at all. People try to comfort themselves, like, oh, he's in a better place or whatever. But there's, there's no ground on which that's built. It, it's, it's, a, it's a hope that's grasping at nothing solid. Whereas the funerals of believers, people that really love the Lord, they can actually be pretty celebratory. Um, I actually remember when my grandma died, I was a freshman up at Bowling Green State University. Uh, she was declining in bad health, and, and I knew that this time was coming. But uh, I got a phone call one Sunday morning. I was walking to church. I got the call that my grandma had died. And, uh, man, it, it was a really interesting experience because as I hung up the phone, it was like I actually had an incredibly deep level of satisfaction. Um, really interesting, like a, a very, very deep piece. As a matter of fact, like in, in some ways I was almost envious of her. I'm a very happy person, and I love my life, so I'm not trying to say I'm suicidal or anything. Um, but I, in, in some ways, it was just like, man, my grandma ran the race well, you know? I, I was there at that time. I think I was 18 years old. It's like, man, I feel like I'm running well right now, but I don't know how I'm going to finish. Like, I hope I finish well. Grandma finished well. And as I went to worship that Sunday morning, it was one of the coolest uh, Sunday morning worship experiences I'd ever had because... I thought about, as, it, you know, as I was singing praise to the Lord here on the earth, you know, limited by my, my flesh and, and limited with how, how well I'm able to see and interact with the Lord, I thought, man, like, Grandma's with the Lord. She's getting to worship in heaven with the angels right now. Man, like, that, that's pretty awesome, right? She had hope in death, and I had hope in her death. It's different for Christians. Now, I don't understand all the details of what happens exactly when you die. Timelines, that kind of stuff. It can get a little bit confusing. Um, when Jesus was, was being crucified, you probably know about the thief on the cross that was next to him that said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And uh, Jesus told him, what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. 
okay? But the scripture also makes it clear that there's going to be an actual resurrection of the dead, okay? So people seem to, I don't know if there's like some sort of intermediate state where people die, that they go into some sort of conscious fellowship with the Lord, but that's not necessarily the final state because at, at some point there's going to be a resurrection. Um, and I, I just want to walk through the timeline a little bit with you of just in this passage to help you understand kind of the interaction between dying, being raised to life, Jesus coming back. If, if you um, look at this, basically I see these four things in the passage. One, people are going to die before Christ comes back. We could say a lot of people are going to die before Christ comes back. Two, some people are still going to be alive when Jesus comes back. That should be pretty amazing. Um, three, Jesus will come down from heaven and the dead will rise when he comes. That's going to be crazy. Four, the living will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? And so, um, with, with all these kind of things, just as you walk through there, point number one, that, that, that people will die before Christ comes back, we see what Paul said there, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Some people will still be alive when Jesus comes back. Paul said, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I want to give a side note here. This isn't in my notes, but I think it's important to say. Um, it's interesting what Paul said. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Some people will point at this and say, look, like, there's an error in the Bible. Like, Paul thought that he was going to be around and when Jesus came back. He says, we who are still alive. Well, here's the deal. The Apostle Paul didn't know everything either. He, like, I think we forget that sometimes. Like, God speaks through these human authors, but that doesn't mean that they know everything. Now, Paul's not saying, I am definitely going to be alive when Jesus comes back. Matter of fact, he's going to say later, we don't know when he's going to come back. But what I see in the way that Paul wrote this is that he lived with an expectation and probably almost a hope. Like, hey, maybe I'll be around when Jesus comes back. You know? Like that, that, so we should live with that same kind of expectation. Number three, that Jesus will come down from heaven and the dead will rise. You see, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So some of these Thessalonian believers were worried about their friends that had died, partially because they heard about Jesus coming back. They're like, man, like, we don't want them to miss it. And, and it's like, man, that, that's going to be a, a glorious return of our king. And uh, Paul said, no, d d don't worry. Like, they're, they're not going to miss it because they're going to rise when he comes down. They're going to get to partake in this thing happening. And then uh, this actually says that the, the dead in, in Christ will rise first. Okay? And then the living are going to be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. We see, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Man, what an awesome last sentence there. And so we shall always be with the Lord. God invites us into his kingdom with himself. Okay. Now, um, there's, there's even more, I think, to be said about some of this. I don't have time to get into all of the end times kind of stuff as far as what all is going to happen. But even there where it says like the living being gathered in, uh, up into the air with the Lord, even there if we look at Revelation, I don't think that's the last step because we actually see that a new heavens and new earth are going to be created. Um, whether that actually means a completely new heaven and new earth or whether that means a restored heaven, heaven and earth, I kind of lean towards the restored side just from some other stuff in Romans. But uh, regardless of what's going to be happening there, it talks about new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven and that God will dwell among us. And so there's going to be some awesome stuff that's going on there. So we don't have every question that's answered. Um, but here, here's one question 
that God promises, that, that we see consistently addressed in the scriptures that we see we will not get the answer to, okay? And you know what that is? When this is going to happen, <laughs> okay? Um, and there's always people that think that they can tell you when it's going to happen, which is crazy to me because, like, it says it over and over again in the Bible, like, we don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night, all right? We're going to move on to uh, chapter 5, which is where Paul starts talking about that. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Okay. So, and Jesus talked about this happening. We see this over and over again. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. So we don't know um, exactly when it's going to come. But what we do see is that Paul's saying, hey, because of that, don't let this day take you by surprise. Okay? Don't go around acting like a fool, uh, knowing that Jesus could come back at any minute. All right? I mean, seriously, do you, do you want to be doing something stupid when, when Jesus comes back? Um, I, I, I don't I don't want to. But, uh, yeah, he's saying, like, man, remember who you are, okay? Don't, don't walk around like those that are in darkness. Don't walk around doing stupid stuff. Be sober-minded, okay? Live these holy lives that we've seen him talking about throughout this letter, and he's going to jump back into here in a little bit in the next section that we look at. Um, now, the reality is, it's, it's not even like God, like, isn't watching right now, and then all of a sudden he's going to come back and find out what you're doing. Like, he knows what you're doing even right now, um, but the, the reality is that can either be a good thing or a bad thing, okay? Some of us may not like the idea of God, like, constantly knowing what we're doing, constantly watching us, you know, kind of like, oh, wait a second, like, that, does, the, does the omnipresence of God, the fact that God uh, knows everything that you do, this is omniscience, the fact that um, he, he's present everywhere, does that make you nervous, does that make you feel like your teacher that's kind of like looking over your shoulder while you're taking your exam and you're really uncomfortable? Um, or like your boss that's standing there while you're working, like kind of waiting for you to mess up. Does it make you feel like that? Or does it make you feel like, man, like it's a comforting presence. The Lord's with me. You know, you ever have to do something really difficult, but you have someone that's really good at that doing it with you? It's like, okay, sweet, I can do this now. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like, is it, is it like that? Right? When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What he ended that with was, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that wasn't meant to be like, a, you better be doing this because I, go, I know whether you're being faithful. But it's a comforting thing. Like, hey, I know this is a hard commission that I gave you, but I'm going to be with you. I'm not sending you out just to do it by yourself. I think about King David in Psalm 23, one of his famous psalms, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In that psalm, he says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
he realizes the fact that as he goes through his life, it's a comforting fact that the Lord is with him. Why is that? Well, what, what makes the difference between being comforted by the presence of the Lord or being nervous about the presence of the Lord? I think the difference comes to, one, are you at peace with him? And two, do you know that he loves you? Look at this. This is really key. Verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. Our God has not destined us for wrath. Okay? Now, that doesn't say that his wrath won't come on anyone, right? We saw earlier in that passage how wrath is coming, and that, that some people are not going to escape that. But here's the deal. God doesn't want us to experience that wrath. Okay? We, we read John 3.16 earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We actually see in, in 2 Peter, God is holding off his judgment of the earth so that more would have time to come to repentance. See, in Ezekiel 33, he talks about, man, I, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God wants us to repent, okay? God doesn't want us to have to experience his wrath. Now, you will if you choose not to repent and put your faith in Christ. But that's not what God's destined us for, okay? God has not destined us for his wrath, but for obtaining salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we awake or sleep, we will live together with him. That's the only way that we can have salvation, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, destined us for salvation through being good people, through making the world a better place, through whatever else you want to put in there, giving lots of money. No, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? Who died for us so that we, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. He died for us. You know why he had to die? Because God's a holy God that punishes sin. And the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. We just sang about it in one of the songs earlier. And that, that you don't have to face God's wrath because Jesus took it for you if you put your faith in him. And why? Not just so that you can get out of hell. I think oftentimes we see Christianity as a get out of hell free card. Okay? We kind of see it as, oh yeah, God just doesn't want me to burn in hell, but he doesn't really have interest in, in me or being close to me or being friends with me or anything like that. No. Not only does he save you from the wrath of God, but what? So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So not only does he save us from wrath, he invites us into fellowship. You can't get a better message than the gospel. And man, we need to understand the fullness of that. Every part of it. That there is salvation in no one other than Christ. That, that we, we need to look to Jesus and put our faith in him for our salvation. And that not only does that save us from the wrath of God, but it brings us into his love. Man, praise the Lord for that. So as Paul said here, we need to encourage one another with these words. I love what Laura said. I didn't tell her to say that earlier uh, about how like, let's never outgrow the gospel or something along those lines. That was essentially what I want to say right here. Uh, let us never outgrow the gospel. We need to constantly be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. That, that's the most important message. Everything flows back to that. You want to see maturity in your life in Christ? Be rooted in the gospel every minute of every day. That's how you're going to grow in the Lord. Okay? Don't think that the gospel is elementary for new believers and now all of a sudden I'll learn all this really cool end time stuff. Okay? No. Learn end time stuff. That's cool and good. But let it be rooted in the gospel. Always go back to that. Um, now, Paul closes out his letter to the Thessalonians with a bunch of short statements about how we can live holy lives in light of the gospel. And I'm actually just going to go through those now. I, I love reading the end of Paul's letters because it's like, 
super, super dense. Like whatever the most dense element is, I don't know, like uranium or something like that. Maybe not the most dense. It's kind of, the end of Paul's letters are kind of like uranium. Like there's a lot packed in there. Um, so we're just going to, I don't have a bunch of time, but I want to go through each of these, uh, these statements and kind of just expand on them a little bit. So if we pick it up. Uh, th- this is all, now that Paul has made sure, once again, the Thessalonians remember the gospel uh, and what's going to be happening now, he says, okay, live in light of that. This is how you should live. So here we go, verse 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Quite simply, Paul's telling you, hey, love your leaders. Love your pastor well. I didn't write this, by the way. This is, this is a Bible. So... So uh, it's kind of weird for me as your pastor telling me that you're supposed to love me well. Um, but you, you guys, just if you want to know how you're doing, I think you do a great job of, of loving me well and other leaders well. Um, but the, the, the fact of the matter is I think that this is missed in a lot of churches. This is missed, I think, a lot of time in our church as a whole. We forget that the pastor is a brother in Christ, okay? Like, like I'm just a Christian that's saved by God's grace the same way you are. And, and I don't ever want you to view me as something different. Please don't ever view me as like a mediator between you and the Lord. Like Paul says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm not a priest. I'm not going into the temple for you. You know, this kind of thing. The, the, we, we are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and God has called uh, pastors and elders and churches to a specific role of leadership. But do not think that they are outside the need of fellowship in that church. Okay. Um, so whatever happens, whether you stay a part of H2O, whether you go off to church somewhere else, remember this. Remember not only to honor your pastor well, but love him well. Remember, like, he, he needs the accountability and the encouragement of the church just as much as anybody else does. Like, he needs to be told when he's wrong sometimes. Like, if you, he needs you to help him point out where sin is in your life, right? We all have blind spots, and, and, and we need to help each other with that. The pastor shouldn't be such an intimidating figure that we don't feel like we can speak to him about something. And some of you guys have rebuked me when you've seen me in sin, and I thank you for that, okay? Uh, I, I need that, okay? I need the accountability and the fellowship and the love of the church just as much as anybody else does. Um, there's no pastor that does not need the prayers of his congregation, okay? Uh, Paul himself asked the Ephesian church to pray for him. He said this in Ephesians 6.19, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my bo- of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. The apostle Paul is asking the Ephesian church to pray for him, okay? If Paul needs their prayers, I need your prayers, okay? Um, so I know for some of you guys that, that, that do pray for me on a consistent basis, I thank you um, very much for that, and that is something that we're always going to need to be able to have a healthy church. Um, moving on to 513. Live in peace with one another. Man, commit to doing this. Are you committed to living in peace with other people. This starts with loving the Lord and asking him to make you more like Jesus. If you become more like Jesus, you're going to start to have a much easier time loving other people, okay? You're going to get offended a lot less. It's hard to live at peace when you're constantly getting offended. You know how you constantly get offended? Always thinking that you're the most important person in the room, okay? Because then my needs aren't met, and all of a sudden, if my needs aren't met, we can't have peace. Commit to living at peace. Like, what we constantly see throughout the scriptures is denial of self. Put others above yourself. Serve others. Look out for their interests. This kind of thing. That's what's going to help you live at peace. Okay? So when you find that there's strife in your life, that you're not living at peace with someone, I want you to think, am I being like Jesus and am I loving this person well? Am I putting their needs above my own? 
Am I thinking about how I can serve them or am I only thinking about how they can serve me? If you change your mindset on that, I can guarantee you you will have a lot more peace in your life. Um, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Okay, if some of you are reading NLT, uh, we have a, a, another difference there. It talks about warn the lazy, I think is what it says. Um, but regardless, th- this idea is to admonish is like to give a strong warning or reprimand. He's talking about the unruly. The reason why it's translated unruly here and some other translations might say lazy is this idea of like idleness and unruliness kind of going hand in hand together. Okay, and this, this was one of the problems that we had in the, Thess- in the Thessalonian church was that some people were kind of getting out of hand, okay? A lot of the time, how do you get into doing stupid stuff, sinning, that kind of thing? Sometimes just by being idle. If you're not living on mission, you're going to find yourself living in sin. Have you guys ever noticed that? Like, when you're living hard for Jesus, you're running after him, and you're thinking about him, you're, you're, pr- you're in prayer constantly, you're thinking about how to reach others for the Lord, how much do you find yourself in sin? A lot less than the time where you just find yourself idle, okay? And some of you are going to have more time this summer. You're going to have a lot of opportunity for idleness. And I would just say, man, like, don't forget that your, your mission to live for Jesus is, ev- is everywhere. So I, I think that that's going to help keep you out of uh, a lot of the unruliness that, that is going on here. But when we catch a brother or sister um, that, that is acting a fool, um, we, we need to admonish that brother. We need to admonish that sister, Okay. Uh, as the church, that's one of the things, like, we, we help each other out with that, okay? Don't say, oh, it's not my place to judge. You're not judging. You're, you're trying to help them. You're only judging them if you sit back and think negative things about them and don't do anything about it. Then you're judging them, um, okay? Encourage the faint-hearted. Sometimes we get tired running after Jesus, okay? It can be difficult. Like, this is a marathon, and there's times that you're going to feel really well-energized. You're doing a great job. There's other times you're going to feel faint-hearted, and you're going to need somebody to come alongside you and run the race with you. They need to squirt the water in your mouth or give you a cliff bar or something. Okay? We, we need to encourage the faint-hearted. All right? Some of you in here right now are probably feeling faint-hearted. And my hope is that as the church, we're able to encourage you well. Whether that's from up front here or whether even more so it's the people in your lives. That's why churches have to be communities, not just events or places where we come. You know, I can only encourage you so much from here. But the people that can really run alongside you well are the people that are most involved in your life. Put, your, put their arm around you and help you keep running. Help the weak, okay? Uh, there are all kinds of weaknesses that we deal with, all right? We, can we just admit the fact, like, help, help the weak? I think that's pretty much all of us, like, we need to help each other in these things, right? Some of us are weak in the area of sexual purity. We need help with that. You got to let people in your life, man, you, you struggle with a pornography problem, let your brothers help you. You, you struggle in sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, let your brothers and sisters help you, okay? You struggling with a drinking problem, let us help you. Struggling with pride, let us help you. Whatever it is, we're all probably weak in some area. And, and as the church, we've got to be ready to help each other with this but we can't help you unless we know what's going on. Um, be patient with everyone. This will go a long way when he said earlier about like living at peace. If you're patient with people, you'll live at peace with people. Okay? So once again, where does patience stem from? I think that patience stems from loving people well. You know, I, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to be able to be patient with you if I love you. If I already dislike you or I'm neutral towards you and you do anything to bother me, I'm starting to lose my patience. Okay? 
So man, let us cultivate a love for each other. We'll be patient with each other. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil. Okay, this is the way the world works, right? Somebody does something bad to you, I'm going to do something bad back to them. And and Paul's saying, no, this is not the the Christian way, okay? We did Sermon on the Mount last semester. We saw this same idea uh, where where Jesus was echoing, well, Paul was echoing Jesus. Um, But this this same idea, don't repay evil back for evil, okay? God is the, the one that's going to avenge all wrongs. Can we trust God to be a just judge that will execute vengeance? Okay, Romans 12 talks about that. Leave, leave room for the wrath of God. But we need to do is rather than repaying evil for evil, he, he actually, not just, not just to not do that, but Paul ups the ante here and says, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So not only do we choose to bite our tongue or, or hold our fists back or whatever when someone does evil to us, not only do we not, but he says, go, this, go the extra step further and seek that which is good for one another and for all people. So this goes back to the idea of love your enemies, what Jesus is talking about on Sermon on the Mount. How can we seek what's good for them? When, when someone's doing wrong to us, when someone's doing evil to us, how do we seek their good? Can we pray for those people? Can we share Jesus with those people? Okay? This is not an easy thing to do, and it can get complex. And that, once again, that's part of why we need the church community. We need to help each other figure out some of these kind of things, all right? I'm not saying there's an easy answer for all this. But this is the principle we need to be operating out of, is that when someone does evil to me, I'm not going to repay them back with evil. Matter of fact, I'm going to try and repay them back with good somehow. Okay? That's what God did to us. We did evil to him. We sinned against him. What did he do? Send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins to forgive us and bring us back to him. Whenever you think someone doesn't deserve your grace or your forgiveness, remember how you don't deserve the grace or forgiveness of the Lord. Um, he goes on to say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you want to memorize three Bible verses, it's really easy, that's three verses right there you can memorize. Um, yeah, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. People ask all the time, what's God's will for my life? Well, here you go, it says it right here. This, this is God's will for your life, that you would rejoice always, that you would pray without ceasing, okay? So h- how, do you, how do you rejoice always? Remember the guy that wrote this was a guy that was used to getting driven out of towns, put in prison, beaten, shipwrecked, that kind of stuff, okay? So, so it's not like, oh yeah, it's easy for him to say he has a really good life. No, this is a guy that is not unfamiliar with prison. Rejoice always. How do you do that? Well, you remember this world's not your home. You remember this life is not our only life. You remember that the Lord is with you wherever you go, right? That's how Paul talks about he learned to be content in all circumstances, right? Why was he able to do that? For, because he has strength in Jesus, okay? Um, pray without ceasing. So, so this, do you have a constant conversational prayer life with the Lord, okay? This, I don't think this means like go put yourself in a monastery and just do nothing but pray. But rather, like, do you realize, just like Jesus said in the Great Commission, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you realize you can pray to the Lord wherever you are? And you can pray to him throughout your day. You think about Nehemiah. Uh, he, he prayed immediately between the time that the king asked him a question. He gave his answer. It says that he prayed to the Lord. So, man, let's be people that are in a constant conversational prayer with God. And then he says, in everything, give thanks everything give thanks. Whatever it is that you're going through, there is something that you can give thanks for it about. You can always be thanking Jesus. If things are going well in your life, great. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. You can thank him for that. If you're going through trials, hey, 
what does James say? James 1, consider it pure joy, brothers, when you go through trials of many kinds. Why? Because it produces good stuff in you. So you are able to thank the Lord even in those times. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel any grief over it. Or like, the, or like when I was talking about the perspective on death, or yeah, there's still a sting of death right now. But we're still able to give thanks in all those circumstances because we know that God is working. Um, do not quench the spirit, okay? So don't extinguish the spirit is what this is talking about. Um, so when God is starting to do something in your life, he's starting to move in your heart in some way, don't extinguish that, okay? Not in your life or in the life of others. We need to encourage the Holy Spirit continuing to grow in us, okay? all right? Uh, be, be obedient, okay? How, how do you quench the spirit? Well, I think that one of the ways is just by being disobedient when the Lord is telling you to do something. You're not helping that grow in you. And then he goes on to say, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay? So don't despise prophecy. Uh, essentially, what he's talking about here is, is man, don't think that if, if someone feels like they have a prophetic word, don't just automatically think that that's wrong. Okay? Uh, but what do you say? But examine everything carefully. So if, if someone says they have a word from the Lord, now, if you say you have a word from the Lord, you better be sure that that word is from the Lord because you don't want to be a false prophet. Um, but if someone says they have a word from the Lord, examine it carefully, okay? Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So examine it. You know, we get some of these guys, just like we were talking about earlier, that say, I have a word from the Lord. He's coming back in 2016, you know, whatever. Okay, we, we know that that's not a word from the Lord. Why? Well, not just because we're past 2016, but even if, say, we were in 2013 at the time he said that, how do we know it's not from the Lord? Because we just read, the day the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. People aren't going to be ready for it. We don't know what's going to happen. The Bible's already told us that. So if someone comes along saying, yeah, I know when Jesus is coming back, that's one of the things that we should not cling to. That's one of the every forms of evil that we should abstain from. And yes, it is evil to say that you are speaking for the Lord when you're not. Okay, so be careful with this. Man, if, if, I, I believe that the Lord does give words to people sometimes and that he does want to communicate to us and speak to us. But man, at the same time, that is an evil thing to say, thus saith the Lord, and for it not to be what the Lord said. Okay? But man, don't despise those things, okay? God wants to work through us as his church, and, and, and he does work and, and speak to us sometimes in his Holy Spirit. And I think that the safe response for us is just to automatically despise all prophetic utterances. You know, it's kind of safe and easy for us to, to just say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but at the same time, that's not the right, right way to go about it. So test it. We have to test what's good. Go back to the scripture. See, is this in line? You know the main thing the prophets did? Most people think, oh, prophet, that means like telling the future. That's very little of what the prophets did. They, they did tell some stuff about the future. But you know the main thing they did? Call people back to the Lord. Call them back to stuff they already said. And you Go read the prophets. The vast majority of what they're doing is pronouncing the blessings and curses that were already written in Deuteronomy. God gave this word to Moses. He says, hey, are you coming to the land, you're faithful. These are the blessings I'll give you. Come in, you're unfaithful. These are the curses I'm going to give you. So when the prophets come and they're saying, hey, God's going to do all these terrible things, they're pronouncing the curses that were already written in Deuteronomy. They're calling, the, the, the prophet is speaking the word of the Lord, but they're calling him back to the Lord. And so in some ways, a prophetic utterance is just calling people back to the Lord. And so in, in some ways, what I'm doing right here, putting you guys towards the scriptures, 
bringing out the word of the Lord, in, in some ways, that's a prophetic utterance. I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling the role of the prophet in the sense that I'm bringing the word of the Lord before you with its blessings and its curses. So, um, yeah, so the, the bottom line here is we need to realize, like, man, God is at work in his people. He's at work in his church. We need to help one another and running after the Lord, and we need to live lives that reflect the fact that we have a king that's returning. We have a king that's coming back. We don't know when it is, but we need to live in a way that remembers that. So as I close, um, I want to ask you three questions. First off, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Okay, some of you guys in here may, may have never given your life to the Lord before. Um, you, you may never have actually repented of your sin. You may never have realized that, man, like, I, I'm under the wrath of God. There, I, I'm in my sin. I have not been forgiven of this. I have not asked the Lord to forgive me. I have not put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Then, friend, I tell you, you are not ready for the return of the Lord, and you will be like one of the people that Paul talked about, that when God comes back, they will not escape the destruction that's coming. Okay? If you are a sinner and you are not in Christ, then you are not at peace with God right now. And only through the cross is that possible. So, man, I encourage you, if you are not a believer, put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk more to start a relationship uh, with Jesus, then you'll come talk to me after the service or someone on the prayer team. Second, um, if you are a Christian, how can you live like Jesus is coming back? Okay, Paul gave us a lot of short instruction there at the end of this letter. How can you live like Jesus is coming back? What is there in your life that you realize, man, I'm being disobedient over here? Or, man, I could, I could excel still more over here, okay? Be, be thinking about those kind of things and then act on it. And then finally, um, who needs you to tell them that Jesus is coming back? Who needs you to tell them that Jesus is coming back, you know? We're going to have to, we're, we're going to meet the Lord at some point, whether it be uh, through our death or whether it be at his return, but there, there's going to be a day of judgment. And I would assume that all of us in here know somebody that's not ready for that day. So who is it that you need to tell about this? Most of you guys are about to have a major change in your schedule, okay? This, that's a great opportunity. You know why? You get to reorient your day, and you, your week, and you get to reorient it in a way that you can prioritize what is most important. So you guys are about to take your finals, and then you're going to head off to jobs, new summer classes, whatever it may be. But you're going to make a new schedule for yourself, and you're going to fall into a new routine. And I say, man, what a great opportunity. If that's the case, then, then prioritize what's most important, okay? I, I want you to come up with a plan with a friend for how you can prioritize what's most important, okay? Do you need to be a person that grows in your knowledge of the Lord and you need to experience some more? Then schedule time in your week for reading the Bible. It's powerful. It'll work in you, okay? Schedule time in your week for focused prayer. You know, if you, you're a person that, man, you're like, yeah, I thought these people, they're not ready for Jesus to come back and go talk to them. Schedule time in your week that you're going you're gonna to get lunches or dinners with people that don't know Jesus. And you might be scared as can be. Well, guess what? Jesus is with you. And, and just pray. Seriously. For those of you that are, are terrified to share Jesus with your friends, I ask you, have you ever prayed that Jesus will help you share the gospel with them? Have you ever prayed that he'll soften their heart and that he will create an opportunity for you? And then have you, have you boldly gone forth and expected that that's going to happen and then been looking for ways that he's going to do that? Just start there if, if you can't start anywhere else. Um, schedule time in your week to pray for the lost. 
You know, like, I, I don't know how God's trying to work the most in your life right now, but as you're considering these questions that I ask you, man, like, like think about that. Don't, don't just kind of go on autopilot as you go into this summer. All right? Go on mission. Now, uh, those are just some of my ideas. You can come up with them on, uh, some more on your own. But like I said, get with a friend. Just like what we talked about, the importance of the church and helping each other, admonishing each other, this kind of thing. Get with a friend and talk about what your plan is for how you're going to faithfully follow the Lord this summer and grow in him and reach your lost friends. I want to end this message uh, just by reading the closing of Paul's letter here. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God, we uh, thank you so much for uh, who you are. God, we thank you for uh, your word and the way that it cuts to our hearts, God, and in such an awesome way. Like, Father, I'm ministered to you just as I, as I read it, uh, as I prepare, as I preach, Lord, you, you minister to me, and I thank you for that, God, and I, I hope that um, the others have been ministered to here as well this morning. God, teach us um, how we can be ready for your return. God, teach us how we can uh, just, just grow and excelling still more, Lord. Um, in, in living sober-minded the way that we're instructed to do. And, uh, yeah, Lord, I just pray that you'd give us boldness to, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And, Lord, that, that you would be working in the hearts of our friends and the people that we meet right now, that many more would come into your kingdom. Uh, we love you. We want to lift up our praises to you, Lord. Be pleased as we sing these songs. Uh, we love you, and it's your son's awesome name we pray. Amen.